0: If the Lord were to say to you in this moment, the Lord, take your bulletin and make a list of all the desires of your heart, what would be on that list? What would you write down? And if you get each desire of your heart, how do you anticipate that getting that particular desire would make your life better? would make your life fuller, would make your life flourish. You don't need for me to tell you that a better life and a flourishing life doesn't necessarily result from getting everything that we want. If God gave you every desire of your heart right now in this moment, you might not be happy. It's actually possible that you might be very unhappy because you and I often don't desire the right things and so knowing that to be true about us God gives us this counsel in his word Psalm 37 God tells us delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart commit your way to the Lord trust in him and he will act And so delighting in God and desiring rightly and trusting and flourishing, they are all interconnected. If you and I desire something in our lives that's outside of delighting in God, those desires might not be right and they won't lead to flourishing anyway. And so therefore, you and I, we have to delight in what the Lord delights in. You and I, we must desire what God desires and to seek to do those things in our lives. And listen, there is absolutely no chance that our lives will not flourish. There's absolutely no chance that our lives won't feel whole and right and meaningful when we are delighting in God and desiring what He desires. So toward that end, I'm going to ask you if you'll turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. When you found your place in the gospel of Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to ask you to stand as we come once again this morning to the word of the Lord. Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, and this is what he teaches. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come once again this morning as always to be taught by you. Particularly, Lord, we want to learn from you how it is we ought to pray and what the words mean that you teach us that we should pray. So, Lord, do that good work in us and through us right now in this moment, ultimately, Lord, for your glory, but also for our good so that we might lead lives now that flourish in this world because we want what you want. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last week we began talking about the third petition of the Lord's Prayer, Your Will Be Done. And we talked about two aspects of the will of God. And the first is His will of decree. And we said that's simply the sovereign will of God whereby before the foundation of the world, before anything was created, God determined whatsoever shall come to pass. This is the will of God that will not be thwarted. It's fixed, it's immutable, it cannot be changed, and we must submit to it. The second aspect of the will of God we call His preceptive will. And that's the will of God that's contained in His precepts. The commands that He gives us in His Word, such as the Ten Commandments, along with the commands of Jesus and the rest of the commands included in the Holy Spirit-breathed-out Word of God. These precepts tell us how it is that we should live our lives, and living our lives by God's precepts leads to a flourishing life. Deuteronomy 29, 29 joins the two wills in one verse. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. right? The will of decree, the secret things. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. You're going to have to listen online for fuller explanation and the implications of those two wills. But before we move on from this third petition, this morning we need to look at a third kind of will of God. And this third kind of will is going to give us a fuller understanding of who God is. He's not only a God who decrees, He's not only a God who commands, but He is also a God who has emotion. A God who desires, a God who delights. And so this third will of God is sometimes called the preferential will of God. So here's a spoiler alert. This sermon is not going to address this question. If God wants something, if God desires something, then why doesn't God make it happen? That gets into a huge discussion of the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility and how the two go together. Those are the secret things that belong to God. But He has some re- re- revealed some things to us, and so this morning we are going to stick with the revealed things. This morning we're going to take Scripture at face value as an expression of the heart of God, as it reveals to us yet another facet of the beautiful God that we call our Father who art in heaven. So first I want us to think about Psalm 115, verse 3 psalm 115 verse 3 it says but our god is in the heavens he does whatever he pleases now we have to be careful how we hear this it isn't god being petulant you're not the boss of me i'll do whatever i please it's not what the verse means This isn't God doing His will against another will, though God can certainly do that. He's powerful enough. And none can stand against Him. But the word translated pleases here in Psalm 115 means to delight or take pleasure in. And so that tells us, you and me, that our Father, there are things that that delight Him. There are things that bring Him pleasure. And so we are talking about the emotion of God. And, you know, we are wading into deep waters when we talk about the emotional life of God because the complexity of it is beyond our ability to imagine. And when I say complex, I don't mean it with the negative connotation that we sometimes attach to it today. We go to counseling, don't we, because we're so complex. Because we can't figure out how everything in our life works together because, well, you know... It's complicated. In psychology, complex, at least according to dictionary.com, refers to a system of interrelated, emotion charged ideas, feelings, memories, and impulses that is usually repressed and that give rise to abnormal or pathological behavior. That's what complex is to us, and so we need to take the first part of that definition and leave off the last part. God does have interrelated, emotion-charged ideas, feelings, memories, and impulses, but they don't lead to pathological behavior. They all work together to form this majestic, glorious, flawless, inerrant, infallible whole that we call God. But right now, Think about it in this moment. Think about the the number of believers who are coming to God in prayer. Think about the prayers that are being offered. Some are prayers of praise and thanksgiving for the goodness of God and for what He has given. And God is entering into those prayers of praise and thanksgiving with those people. At the very same moment, right now, in this moment, prayers are being offered to God that are prayers of grief because of what the Lord has taken away. And the the Lord is entering into the prayers of those people. It's complex how it works together. In this very moment, God hates the sin that's taking place right now in our world. He hates the injustice. He hates the evil that he sees. And in the very same moment of hating the evil, he's rejoicing. Because someone now in this moment is coming to faith in Christ. And so there's joy in heaven. I mean, come on, the Baptists have already had their early service. Think of the people who have walked the aisles. Yeah, that's good news. So we we have to concede that we cannot begin to comprehend the complexity of God. The vastness of who He is and how He works all this together at the same time because we can't understand what it's like to live outside of time, but God does. So on the one hand, God could desire or want something, and yet in some complex way for a greater glory than we can imagine, that thing does not come to pass. Just say that so that you and I will be humble this morning that we'll be in awe when we talk about the emotions of God, what He desires, what He wants, what brings Him pleasure. But we do know that the revealed things belong to us. And so this is what's revealed. David writes in Psalm 18, The Lord brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. God delighted in David. Psalm 149, 4. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. God takes pleasure in his people. Isaiah 62, verse 4. God is speaking to Zion, to his people. He says, you shall be called My delight is in her. That's their name. My delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you. And so we need to pause for just a moment and realize that when you and I are praying as Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done. We are praying to a God who delights in his people. We are praying to a God who delights in. To delight in his people. And if we could bring it a little closer home, you are praying to a God who delights to delight in you. How often do you think about God in those terms? That you could be a source of delight to God. Disappointment? Yeah, I get that. Delight? Not so much. And yet God says it's true. How often do you consider when you are praying, when you're making your requests of God that you could be a source of delight to Him, that answering your prayer, that giving you the desire of your heart could delight the Lord? We're going to read this in the next chapter of Matthew, if we ever get to the next chapter of Matthew, (laughs) at least in my lifetime. It's still part of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says there, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts, good things to those who ask him? And so when you and I are praying for God's will to be done, we are praying to a God who can and absolutely does delight. He delights in what and He delights in who He has created. And so when we pray for God's will, we do not come to a God who says, I don't care what you want, I will do what I please. Yes, He is a sovereign God. He remains sovereign over all things. Yes, He is a God who places requirements and expectations on His people. But He's also a God who is for us. And a God who is not against us. So what should our response be? Your response and my response to this God who delights in us. Should we not want to delight Him as well? Should we not ask, Lord, what do you desire? Lord, what do you delight in? Because these are the things that we should delight in. These are the things that we should write down on our lists. The delights and desires of God reorient our passions so that the things in which the world says we should delight no longer have the ability to delight us so that we can sing as we're going to sing at the end of this service. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His blood. We sacrifice them because we know that desiring what God desires, delighting in what God delights, delights the Father, which at the same time delights us, which causes our lives to flourish in ways far greater than our lesser desires. And so now for the rest of our time, I want us to consider just one wish or one want or one desire of God, just one. And this one desire of God is a real game changer for your life and for mine. It's 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9. The apostle Peter writes: The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance this then is the preferential will of god what he wants what he desires in the word translate a wishing here it means to desire or to have or to experience something with the implication of planning accordingly so this is what god wants and he has made a plan to bring it about And God desires that all kinds of people come to repentance. And He plans a course of action to make that happen. Now here's the question. How does the Apostle Peter know that this is what the Lord desires? Let me tell you, Peter didn't know it on his own. The Lord had to reveal it to Peter in a very dramatic way. And if Peter were sitting here this morning on the pew beside you before this dramatic revelation that we're going to talk about he would not have written on his bulletin I desire I wish that no one would perish but that all would reach repentance he wouldn't have written it as great of a preacher as the Apostle Peter was he did not yet have this desire that all people would repent and so he did not structure his life around it. Peter's view of the extent of God's grace was still small. Even after hearing all that he had heard from Jesus, and even after seeing all that he saw as he ministered beside Jesus, Peter would still have limited his gospel preaching. It would not have been for all. His preaching would have only been for some. Not because Peter was prejudiced, but because Peter believed that God might be. He had not yet come to know what delights the heart of God. Peter's gonna, God is going to call Peter to be more radical. God is going to call Peter to revision his life so that Peter's life can really flourish in ways he never imagined. Let's look at how God did it. And I know you know this story. It never matters to me. I tell him anyway. Look in Acts chapter 10. Take your Bibles and you're going to find the story there. If you're looking at the Pew Bible, it's on page 918. This is the story of the drama that God brought into Peter's life. And while you're turning there, before we get to Acts chapter 10, we have to realize that everything Peter had done in his ministry life so far had been done in Jerusalem. Jesus sent the disciples to Jerusalem said, Go wait there for the coming Spirit. And it is in Jerusalem that the Holy Spirit of God descended on the disciples. It's in Jerusalem that Peter preached to, to thousands of people. It's in Jerusalem that thousands of people responded to his preaching and came to faith in Christ. It's in Jerusalem that Peter performed miracles. So many that people were coming and and laying their friends and mats on the street just hoping the shadow of Peter would touch them as he passed by. When persecution broke out against the believers, persecution so severe that they had to flee Jerusalem for their lives, Peter didn't flee. Peter stayed behind because Jerusalem was where the Jews were and they were the ones in Peter's mind for whom the gospel was intended. And so when Peter prayed before Acts 10, your will be done, he might have thought that God meant only in Jerusalem and only to the Jews that lived there. Because Peter not grasped that God did not wish for any to perish, but that all kinds of people should come to repentance, even those outside of Jerusalem. And so God changed all that. And Peter, in the town of Joppa, Peter was there staying with Simon the tanner. It was noon one day and Peter went on the roof to pray. It's where people went to pray. And while he was praying, he became hungry. And while he was waiting for something to eat, he fell asleep and he fell into a trance and he had a vision of something like a sheet that was being lowered down from heaven. And in the sheet were various kinds of Uh, animals and reptiles and birds. And some of those animals within that sheep were considered clean by the Jews and therefore edible. And some of those animals that Peter saw in that sheet were considered unclean. They were not edible. And a voice said to Peter, get up, kill and eat. And Peter replied, surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And three times this happens. Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. I don't think we need to make Peter a villain here. As if he is disrespectfully talking back to God. It's just that God is asking Peter to do something that Peter had believed for his entire life was not the will of God. God did not will Peter to eat unclean food. See, God had established these laws, clean and unclean, to demonstrate to His people the difference between God, who is clean, and people, sinful people, who are unclean. God established these rules so that that people who were not clean would see that they couldn't clean themselves up, that they were dependent on the grace and the mercy of the Lord. These were good laws that really told the gospel story in the Old Testament. But unfortunately, by the time of Peter, the Jews had perverted those laws and used them instead as a way to separate themselves from everybody else, to be separate from and superior to all the other nations of the world because they could not conceive that God wanted all kinds of people to be saved. Instead, God only wanted one kind, and they were the Jews. And so Peter was convinced that the Lord did not know what he was doing by asking him to eat something unclean. But the voice responded to Peter, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And so this is one of those moments that knocks you off balance and disorients you. You thought That you knew, that you knew, that you knew until God shows you you didn't know, not fully. Those are the best moments for us, honestly. Those are the best moments in our lives when God knocks us off balance and when he disorients us. Because you know what that means? That means that growth is on the way. It means that change is on the way. It means that transformation is on the way. It means that Christ-likeness is on the way for us. It means that flourishing is on the way. As we are required to go to the Word of God to find a new equilibrium and reorient our lives according to the desires of God. And so it means that the kingdom of God is about to grow in us and through us. And so the story continues. In Acts 10 verse 17, while Peter was pondering or wondering about the meaning of the vision, men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. So Peter's wondering, which means he is utterly at a loss. He is thoroughly perplexed. He's bewildered. He doesn't know what this vision means or what he was to do with it. But he didn't dismiss it. He wrestled with it. And he pondered what this new revelation of God's will might mean. And while he was thinking about all this, the Spirit of God said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs and do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. The word hesitate means to be uncertain, to be at odds with oneself, to doubt, to waver. And so God's will for Peter is this. Peter, do not hesitate. God's will for Peter, stated positively, is this. Have faith. I know what I'm doing, Peter. Hesitate also means to conclude that there is a difference, to make a distinction, to differentiate. Do not hesitate, Peter. Do not differentiate any more, Peter. You are not to make judgments anymore about anyone's fitness for the gospel. Positively stated, God's will is this. Everyone should hear the gospel without exclusion. Do not hesitate. Because Peter, when you go downstairs and when you see who the men are, you are not going to want to go with them. You're going to believe that you should not go with them because they are Gentiles and they are going to take you into the unclean home of a Gentile. And you will make a judgment, Peter, and you will refuse the opportunity, but don't act in faith. Set your prejudice aside. And the good news is that Peter acted in obedience. Verse 23 says, he invited the men into the house To be his guest. See, this is huge. He didn't feed them on the front porch. He didn't say, Well, if you'll go around to the back door, I'll take care of you. That's what we used to do. So bum used to come around. Mom, you remember Claude Long, don't you? Everybody would feed Claude, but they would never let him in their house, only at the back door or on the front porch. Peter understood what God was saying to him. And so he said to the men, come and be my guest. And the next day he went with them to the home of Cornelius. And Peter shared the gospel with Cornelius and everyone that was in his home. And guess what? All who were present believed the good news and were saved and were baptized with the Spirit. Is that a good story? Is it? It's true. And this is why I believe that Peter wrote over 30 years later, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. No kind of person is excluded from new life, eternal life. It comes through repentance and through turning and faith to Jesus Christ. Jesus talked to the rich young ruler. Jesus talked to the poor blind beggars. Jesus talked with the Jew. Jesus talked with the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus raised the son of a Jewish widow back to life. And Jesus healed the daughter of a Gentile woman who didn't even live in Israel. The gospel is not just for some people, but for all people. This is the desire of God, and this is the truth around which every one of us here must orient our lives. When we see other people made in the image of God, just as we are made in the image of God, we should know that that person, whatever they are like, is one that God considers worth saving. That person deserves to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ from us. That's what delights the Father. Because in His way, He desires that all people come to repentance. We can throw the weight of the Apostle Paul behind this as well. He writes in 1 Timothy 2.3. This is good. And it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior Who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. All people, Presbyterians. In whatever complex way this goes with the sovereign will of God. In whatever complex way this goes with God's declaration in Ephesians 1.4. That He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. However it goes together. God delights in salvation and desires that all people should come to faith. So once again, you and I should be ordering our lives around this desire of God. You and I should be engaged in activities, engaged in conversations, engaged in relationships that provide and promote opportunities for people to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus don't leave them on the porch invite them in when we are praying as Jesus taught us to pray your will be done we are asking God to remove from us any attitude or any way of thinking or any kind of living Or any kind of busyness that prevents us from desiring what the Lord desires and from delighting in doing it. And we have the promise of the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. And He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust Him and He will act. The Apostle John was on the mountain the day Jesus taught This prayer, Jesus taught him to pray, Your will be done. And John writes this in his first letter For all that is in this world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So let's put aside desiring what the world tells us is worth desiring. Those things don't last. They don't lead to a full life. They don't lead to a content life. They don't lead to a flourishing life. Let's do this. Reorient our lives around we what we know God desires and watch Him accomplish eternal forever things through us. Can you believe that's what God does? For you and for me, living that way, that's a flourishing life. And so let's pray, Father, Your will be done. Praying is what makes us turns us into the kind of people who desire what God desires. I'm going to close with this. These are words from a Puritan theologian, Herman Witsius, who wrote this book on the Lord's Prayer in the late 1600s. So beautiful. He tells us that we must implore divine assistance for the discharge of all these duties. Our will deceived by false appearances is so strongly attached to an imaginary good so thoroughly blinded by a ruinous love of self so firmly bound by the iron chains of prejudices so obstinate and rebellious against god but unless the almighty power of god shall change our hearts we can neither break our chains nor bow to the divine authority. What a prayer. If you and I would pray it. Lord, take away the deception. Let me see. Reveal the false appearance of what we think we want. Show us that the good offered by the things of this world is only imaginary. Change our hearts so that we desire what you desire and delight in that which delights you. Let's pray. Father, we pray as you command us to pray, as Puritan 400 years ago encourages us to pray, Lord, that you would do your good work in us and through us. We need your divine help. Lord, we are so easily deceived. Lord, the evil one in this world we know can mask himself as an angel of light. What power! He has to sway and to deceive. Lord, how easily we are tempted to see what is only imaginary, Lord, because we want to believe it's true. We, we deceive ourselves. We say this thing is good, that it will lead to our good, Lord, because it's what we want. So we allow ourselves to fall into that deception. Lord, change our hearts, change our minds. Let us search your word, Lord, for what you love, for what you desire, for what pleases you, for what delights you. And, Lord, may we live our lives toward that end. It's why this is a game changer, Lord. It determines everything we do in our lives and how we live them and who we live our lives among. Help us, Lord, to delight in you and desire what you desire